Good morning. The scripture today is from John chapter 13, verses 16 through 35. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money, Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Thank you, Debbie. We have a Christmas tradition in the small house on Christmas Eve. We uh, get the family together and the kids get the blankets out, they get on the floor and all the adults and the older kids are getting on the couch and everything and we get around the big TV screen and watch that great classic, The Muppets Christmas Carol. It is fantastic. If you have not 
treated yourself to this rendition of this great story. I mean, I think it's by far the most superior version. It sounds silly, but it's so profound. And there's a scene where Ebenezer Scrooge, played by Michael Caine, it's sort of at the beginning of the of the story. You know, he goes home to to his quiet house, his cold house and everything, and and he's about to be visited by his old partners, the ones that were just as greedy as he was and things. And and uh, if you know anything about the Muppets, you know the two guys that heckle up in the booth? You know, the ones that are like, it was pointless and all this kind of stuff. Well, they're his old law partners, I mean, uh, financial partners. And uh, they call it, they're Marley and Marley is how they refer to themselves. And uh, they come and they do this whole song and dance and everything. And they're trying to warn him that if you end up like us, you'll be wrapped in chains and everything. Well, the whole point of bringing this up is that uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, as he's seeing them, he's never witnessed any kind of apparitions or anything before. So he he's saying, he goes, I, I don't believe what I'm seeing. And they say, well, why would you doubt your senses? And he says, because even the smallest of things can set them, set them off. You can, you can have a, a, a bad bit of cheese and it could, you know, distort what you're seeing and what you're experiencing. And then he, he leans and he says, there's more of gra- gravy than of grave about you. And they all laugh. Oh, oh, what a terrible pun. You know, where, how does he come up with these things? But they challenge him, like, why would you deny your senses? We're right here before you. And because he can't believe it, he, he doesn't want to see what's happening right before him. That's my tie to make Christmas still bleed into today, into this text. When we're talking about this character, Judas Iscariot, who has betrayed Jesus, the, the problem is, is that you and I live in a world where we really can't believe our senses. We live in a world where we can't really believe everything we see on a screen, can we? through digital imaging, through um, filters on our phone and all these, anything could be happening. And we're, we're living in an age of doubt of any kind of reality. How am I supposed to know that what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I'm witnessing is even true? Could be a bad bit of cheese I've got or this phone filter that's throwing me off. And, and we live in a, in, a, in, a, in a world of what they would refer to as deep fakes, people always trying to throw us off, trying to trick our senses. I think the greatest thing that we struggle with in finding is an authentic love, this this part of our life that is supposed to be the most reliable, most rewarding experience of our life. And the world is out there kind of looking for what is the authenticity of the love that I should be feeling, that I should be experiencing, that I should be receiving and giving. And, and oftentimes when we talk about the culture, it's, it's tempting for us as Christians to look at it as the, the us versus them mindset that they're ruining love out there for us because the Bible says this. But, but I really believe that as we've been walking through John, what we're seeing from Jesus is that shepherding heartache, that shepherding bent that says, I'm, I'm not out to wage war against them. They're the ones without a shepherd. They're wandering aimlessly. The scripture tells us that as he looks out over the multitude and he, his heart breaks for them because they don't have the answers they're looking for. And so rather than looking at the culture around us, what we have to start acknowledging is that that hopelessness, that waywardness has found its way into the, uh, the environment of the church. That as more of that culture seeps in, as more of that kind of love that has left them uh, dry and wayward as well as part of our experience, we find ourselves kind of in the same boat in a lot of ways. 
All of that's to say is that when Jesus gives us a demonstration or an example of love, what he's giving us is kind of like this a certificate of authenticity. I don't know what kind of gifts you gave this year or that you received. Every once in a while, we're kind of wondering, do I have the real thing? Is this really, you know, what it says? Is this the label? Or if it's a collector's item, they'll give a certificate with it. It says this is number 18 out of 150 made or something like that. What we're going to see in the text this morning is we're going to see a demonstration of absolute, like kind of that deep fake love that comes from a man named Judas. But we're also going to see the certificate of authenticity, which comes from Jesus. What is this love really supposed to look like? What is it supposed to behave like? And that's going to be our greatest challenge. It's going to be demonstrated for us, but then the challenge is going to become, or the command or the demand is going to be, and you do the same. That's going to be the hard part for us to swallow when we see all that it is. So we have a stark contrast for comparison. We get to hold up the... the. Um, the fake model up against the genuine one in our text. We've got quite a bit of ground to cover and some background to cover. And I'm always amazed because when I knew that we would be coming into verses 34 and 35 of this chapter, I was really looking forward to because it gives us so much material to talk to the church about how we're supposed to emulate the love of Jesus Christ and what it's supposed to mean for us. And there's a lot of depth and and richness there. And so I thought it was going in that particular direction as the main thrust. But seeing it in the context on the heels of what Judas does to Jesus strengthens our call and makes it that much more difficult for us to even accept and to swallow. So we're going to spend a little bit more time in sort of the the phony end of the pool, if you will, rather than just on uh, the authenticity of it. Let's see if we can make sense of this as we go through this text together. Now, keep in mind that this is during the Passover meal, that Jesus has just concluded washing the feet of his disciples. And we said, that's not a practice we want to continue. So I just want to be repetitive about that. Let's make sure we don't make any weird traditions at faith. We don't need to do that for one another. But in the day of walking on dusty roads and open-toed sandals and everything, it was quite a, a, a model of, of appreciation and, and servitude towards the people that were a guest in your home that you would have their feet washed. And remember what we said, too. It wasn't just that everybody was willing to do that. They would say, this is that really we have our servants to do that for the most part. And we would only ask our Gentile servants. We don't even want those of our own heritage uh, doing this for you. It's a, quite a lowly task. And yet we see Jesus put on the uniform of a servant, roll up the towel around his waistband, and then he gets down below and starts washing the disciples' feet. Much to the consternation of Peter, who says, you, the greatest in our company and everything, you will not be washing my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. You're not in fellowship with me. You're not allowing me to demonstrate this thing that the world needs to see. And then Peter says, well, then don't stop at my feet. Get my head and my hands also. And what does Jesus say to Peter? The one who's already clean just needs a little bit of sprinkling off. You just got some dust on your feet. You don't need to be washed head to toe if you're already clean giving us the signal that those of us that are in Christ that have allowed his grace to wash our, as as John said, welcome back, John, by the way, and leading us in worship this morning. As John said, the darkness that's in our hearts, the light that has come to invade our hearts and to forgive us of all uncleanliness washes us clean. 
And so it's just a matter of staying in tune and in fellowship with him. Lord, forgive me for the, for the way I behave today. Or Lord, clean up my path as I wandered away from you because I am prone to wander. So Lord, keep me on your, on your way. Keep my, keep my feet dust free. And so Jesus leaves this example in this foot washing thing. And this is happening all at the same meal. And as we heard from Debbie earlier, verse 17 told us, Jesus says, so if you know these things, it's not enough just to know them. It's not enough just to accept my example. Blessed are you, fulfilled, complete are you if you actually do them. That would no doubt cause some head scratching and say, well, how are we supposed to do this? And, and what do you mean by blessed are if you do them? So the lesson on what and how to do isn't done. Jesus is going to continue to demonstrate, not just in the act of foot washing, but even in the interaction of the one that he knows is set to betray him. So the, the love that we're talking about here and what I really want us to get a good image of this morning is that the love that is being demonstrated by Jesus is so radically different than what the, the world or the culture experiences and even knows is possible. It's radically different than many of us will allow ourselves to entertain and, and to be in, but it's one he puts on display. And what kind of love is it? It's one of vulnerability. So this is how he behaves to a known traitor. Verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. And here he quotes the scripture that he's saying, this is what's going to be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me or is in direct opposition is, is trying to kick. I used to be able to kick higher than that. Try to, I don't know if you got that on camera. I can, no, I'll move on. This is a, this is a quote from the Psalm of David. And, and just real quickly, what's going on in the background here is, is David has an advisor as any good king would have and someone that he could trust. I mean, if you're going to be the king's advisor, you got to be trustworthy. But David's son Absalom starting to rise up to oppose his father to take leadership of the kingdom. And Ahithophel, who is David's advisor, starts thinking, I should ride that train because that one looks more promising. David could be on his way out, and because I'm good at kind of playing the game and being political and strategic, I should probably back Absalom, David's son, instead. This is starting to mirror the character that we're seeing around the table with Jesus. Because Judas, I don't believe, starts off as this obvious detractor or obvious traitor. He's along for the ride. He's looking for how he can ride the train of Jesus wave of popularity. Perhaps he's one of these that are saying that the Messiah is going to come as so many were, as we know, the Messiah is going to come and set us up as a nation and help us to be victorious of our enemies and drive the Romans out. So if he seems to be the best prospect, let's get on that train and ride that. So he, so Jesus is quoting Psalm Psalm 49, one, to, to show us this is kind of what's going on with David as well, and it's being fulfilled that it's happening to him. But Jesus leaves a phrase out of this psalm passage. He leaves out the phrase, even my close friend in whom I've trusted. Jesus knew right from the get-go, we saw this in chapter 6, verse 70, he says, one of you is a devil. Jesus knew what Judas was all about. And yet the, the passage already said, as we saw in verse 18, I know whom I've chosen. He selected his followers. He called them and invited them. He knew what was in Judas' heart and welcomed him anyway. 
So Jesus didn't have one of those things like, you know, I think I can turn him. I think he means well. He's just making a few mistakes. He knew exactly who Judas was from the get-go. And yet he was part of the plan so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And no doubt, even though Jesus didn't trust him, he would have had a relationship with him. He would have bonded with him to the extent that he was compassionate against the, or over those who were wayward, who were uh, even not understanding who he was. Jesus' heart would have gone in Judas' direction. We have this ourselves, right? We sometimes love people more than we know they love us. And because it's prompting us and we say it's still right to do or because I'm compassionate about them or where would they be if I wasn't giving them this attention or they burned all those bridges. I don't want to be another person to do that or or abandon them. We have the capacity. This is sort of the undercurrent of our message today. We have the capacity to love one directionally without it being reciprocal. And that is quite shocking in our day and age and with our experience. Jesus is proving this. I know whom I've chosen. I know that Judas is the devil. I'm going to still care for him. I'm going to still put him in charge of the money. We knew when the time when uh, when Mary was uh, presenting the fragrance, right? And she spilled out all this expensive ointment to to um, to prepare it over over Jesus' feet and to wash his feet. And what does Judas say? He goes, hey, 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 this is like a year's worth of wages worth of, of, of money and value in this. Uh, we should have probably put it up on eBay and, and given the proceeds to the poor. I mean, it's what we do with these things. But the text tells us Judas didn't have that in his heart. He was a thief. So Judas knew right from the get-go, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm as close as can be to the money. And this guy keeps giving it away. He keeps letting it slip through the fingers. How are we supposed to lead a revolt if we're not funded? How am I supposed to line my pockets if I'm not, uh, if I don't have access to all the value that's coming our way? So Jesus knew what Judas was about. A little bit later in the Psalms, uh, many believe this to be kind of a a further commentary on this betrayal that King David was experiencing between Ahithophel and even his own son Absalom in Psalm 55. I think this gives us a little bit more of that undercurrent. David writes, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it's you. A man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Later in the psalm, he says, My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Francis Bacon said, A bad man is worse when he pretends to be a saint. This is what Judas is doing is he's pretending and apparently he's doing an incredible job because as they're sitting around or reclining, I should say, around the table, they're starting to go. He keeps saying that one of one of us is going to betray him. He keeps saying one of us is is a devil. Who is it? You know, a lot of times we pride ourselves on being able to call it like even after it's, oh, yeah, we all knew. You ever see some mug shots and you're like, who didn't see that coming? Sometimes it just seems so obvious. It ain't the case with these guys. 
Judas had the markings of a disciple. He had the behaviors of a disciple. He had the characteristics, it would seem, at least on the outside, of somebody that could be trusted. They weren't shocked when he said, hey, why is she spilling out this expensive ointment? We could have given it to the poor. They might have said, well, that seems like something he'd be, he'd care about. Even to the point when Jesus says, well, it's going to be the person that I dip the bread for and I give it to him. And then he says, hey, go and do what you're going to do. Go do it quickly. They all thought, oh, he must be going to buy stuff. I think it's very interesting that he could be so close and such in the inner circle to still, but still able to cause such wicked betrayal. And I think that's what makes the sting so bad. There's a, there's a commentary for us too as a church and as a culture of Christians in how we are so often, um, shocked when people fall or they mislead or they abuse and scandal comes and everything we have to remind ourselves and this is something we've talked about even like on a security team level and things like that where people are like oh we should have known this was a potential threat and it's like well who wants to wake up thinking about everything a bad guy can do you know there's there's a place that we live if we're living you know humbly before the lord and purely before him that our minds aren't trying to think 10 steps ahead of all the evil and wickedness that people can do the reason why christians are an easy target for so much of this the wolves in sheep's clothing is because we're gullible in a good way because we trust we don't go into everything suspicious who wants to live like that we know that god's got our back we don't have to look out for ourselves so much Jesus is putting this on display. He's saying, look, I knew this guy was a devil, still had the purse in his hands, still had him walking with us and everything like that. It's just the way it's going to be that you are going to have false disciples in your midst. But his grace is sufficient to deal with the fallout of it. It's the behavior that Jesus exemplifies while he's anticipating this betrayal is what should be blowing our minds. But see, Judas wasn't authentic. The, Jesus wasn't his master. He was his servant. That's what comes at our, uh, that's what we start to understand as we think about what his reaction was to the, to the ointment being put on Jesus' feet and him freaking out. And then the scripture saying that he was a thief. You see, he wanted to use Jesus for his purposes, not to be used by him. That's what it means to have Jesus as your Lord and master. It's like, Lord, how do I serve you? Judas wasn't thinking along those lines. A thief doesn't give. Even Ephesians 4 makes it clear to us that in, in this whole passage, it talks about the what we'd call the put-offs and put-ons of the, of the Christian life. You have to put off this behavior, but the Lord doesn't just leave it alone so that you're kind of living as a monk in a monastery. You put off this bad and you, and you replace it with this fruitful behavior, with this productive behavior, with this glorifying behavior. When it gets to the thing of how is a thief no longer a thief, many of us would answer that and say, well, when he stops stealing. But the scripture says that's not enough. You've stopped the bad behavior, but you haven't replenished the debt. So a thief is no longer a thief when he stops stealing, but he starts working with his hands, the scripture says, and then he starts giving to those who have need, which was just an incredible report that Sarah gave us about all that this church is doing right now. And I'm hearing the numbers and I'm kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get up after all this. And talk about this. This is a sign of when we stop stealing from others. I'm not saying all of you were thieves until this Christmas. But when that's in our behavior, we say that's when we stop stealing from, from others. What is the replacement to it? It's not enough just to stop the behavior. It's how do I start to build into the debt that I've created 
So I start working with my hands and I give to those who, who have need. Judas had no intention of giving with the value that Mary was giving Jesus when she was anointing his feet. And so, again, Jesus knew this. Judas didn't want a cross. He wanted a crown. None of us really want a cross, do we? But we understand that to be a follower of Jesus, to be his disciple, that we know how the story goes. We know what the gospel has called us to. We know that at the end of this road is a torture instrument that Jesus himself will hang on. And we know that the New Testament writers said that that's what we do with our flesh and with our sin is that it's been crucified on the cross. So we know that that element is in our experience as Christ's followers. Judas wouldn't want any part of that. And we see as the heat is getting turned up, as it's pretty clear that Jesus is going to quote unquote lose this battle. He wants out because he didn't want a cross. He wanted a crown. This would be indicating to us that it's entirely possible to be near Jesus and yet not let him into your heart. Now, it would be really easy for me to do a drive-by guilting here and to cause all kinds of, of doubt in your heart about whether or not you truly belong to Jesus. And, well, I you know, sometimes am tempted to sell Jesus out too, or I don't always want to go down the road that leads towards a cross, so I must be a Judas as well. And I could kind of tighten that screw, and there'd be a lot of well-meaning people who, who fear the Lord and love the Lord who know that they're not perfect and would instantly put themselves in the Judas category. And I think we've got to be careful not to do that. Not only was Jesus a very, uh, Judas not a, a very unique betrayer because he was used at a critical point of making sure that Jesus was going to get arrested and turned over to the authorities, all part of God's plan, but also Judas set out to deceive. Judas set out to play the part. Judas, Judas was identified from the beginning of being false. And, and too many Christians, it would seem, are, are, are afraid of the fact that with mistakes must mean I'm not authentic or I must not be in the family or I must not be in the kingdom. And what we do is we negate the role of grace. Grace has been given for those who come and say, I got my feet dirty today and I need them washed off. That's the relationship that Jesus was portraying the whole time in this, in this whole story. We see a bunch of disciples who are close and near to Jesus, who are flawed uh, human beings, who are failing constantly, and they're about to be absolute cowards. And yet Jesus calls them his own. It was Judas who was singled out as not belonging. Back in our text, and back in verse 21, it tells us that Jesus, after saying these things, was troubled in his spirit. We've heard this phrase before. We, we know that what this phrase troubled in spirit means is something really severe. The anguish over all of these things is, is culminating, is, is, is climaxing in Jesus' uh, body and in his heart. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, again, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, this is just the way John refers to himself in his gospel. It's not an arrogant thing. He doesn't say whom Jesus loved the most, but it's a, it's a great um, indicator. It's something that would even be great to hear from us, you know, as we say, well, who are you? Well, I'm just one whom Jesus loves. 
you know, understanding that that's what John is saying is, is I, I, I don't deserve to have my name written in this account. I'm just simply the one that Jesus showed favor to. And they were reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him, Simon, ever the watchdog. When Jesus says someone's going to betray, Simon's, you know, whole body and posture gets up and they're like, let's find out who this dirt ball is. Let's string him up. Who's going to betray him? You can imagine when Jesus eventually tells Peter, as we'll see here in the next section, it's going to be you too. He's thinking, oh, wait, wait, we were just going to defend you. We were going to chase out the guy who was going to betray you. He says, no, you're going to deny me. So Simon Peter motioned to, to ask Jesus of whom he was uh, motioned to John because of where John was sitting to, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple one whom Jesus loved, leaning back on Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's he whom I'll give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped that morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. This whole scene is not like we would picture from the, from the painting where everyone's sitting upright and all kind of leaning over towards Jesus and, and looking at the, what would be in our view, the, the camera view or whatever, and all smiling and enjoying their time together and stuff. The reclining at table was this kind of U-shaped table, and they would be leaning on predominantly sort of their left hand, kind of lounging out with their feet away from the table so they could reach over and grab the meal and the drink and things like that and sort of relate to one another. And so they're kind of sprawled out, almost like, you know, when your family's really ready to kick back. And you got the, like I said before about our movie day, you got the blankets on the floor and the pillows out and all this kind of stuff. They're comfortable. They're, they're reclining and they're leaning. And there's, there's two places of honor, which is what we would expect. So the host of the family, uh, the, of the dinner, which would be Jesus, is going to reserve the spot to his front and his back to the people that he wants to show honor to. And we know from the text that John's close enough to just kind of lean back against Jesus or lean back this way against Jesus and say, who's going to betray you? So we know the one whom Jesus loved is in front of him. And then Jesus indicates where Judas is by saying, well, he's the one I'm going to be able to dip in, which is a great, a, another great sign of being a good host and showing honor to your guests. The, the bread is almost kind of like how we would dip like a tortilla chip. It's like firm like that. And you can get some stuff and you kind of get, oh, you got to try this. I got some good pieces in there. And so that's what Jesus says. It's the one I'm going to hand the bread to. It wouldn't be out of character to do that for your guest of honor. So who can he reach the person right next to him? The thief, the traitor, the devil, sitting at a place of honor, reclining at a place of honor right next to Jesus. Is Jesus not going out of his way, almost in a sense of saying, you know what, Judas, it's not too late for you to turn from this path you're on. That, that even though I know this is going to fulfill the scriptures, even though I know that your heart has been hardened against me, you need to know that the love of God is so penetrating and so, so, um, full of effort and is targeting you that he would even put him right to his, uh, put him right on his left and be able to show him that place of honor. As if to say, I'm not done with you, Judas, you can turn from this path. Romans 12:20 says if your enemy is hungry feed him 
If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Or other words, you will be laying heavy on his conscience. If you're serving your enemy, even while they are opposing you, they'll sit there and go, why are you doing this for me? It's hard to have a fight when only one side will do battle. So this begs the question, why would Jesus pick Judas? He's a devil. We know this. this you know, it's, it's clear from the scripture we've already studied. Well, he gives us the indication by quoting Psalms that this is to fulfill the scripture. And he's re- referencing a specific scripture, but all throughout we have, um, we have um, prophecy of betrayal. Another passage even talks about the amount of silver that, that a, a character like Judas, who would eventually be Judas, will receive for trading in Jesus, for selling him out. So Jesus is saying, well, this is to fulfill scripture for one, but there's a combination that's happening here because we could get a little bit twisted around and go, well, that makes it sound like he was automatically going to betray him and there was no out for Judas. And that would be a waste of a lot of the other effort that Jesus was demonstrating here. But there's a combination of God's sovereignty and Judas' choice at play here. You see, Judas was led by his own desire. He fell into the trap of Satan because he was led by his own desire to see Jesus be a certain thing that Jesus had no intention of being. Judas was happy to to ride that train, as we said, of, of Jesus' success until the time it looked like it was getting ready to come off the rails and then he wanted to jump. And so the warning happened. So even though God knew that, that, that Judas would be the instrument, even though he knew that part of the plan was that as somebody betrays his son, he would, he would uh, allow him to be turned over to Satan. Even though he knew that, it was still Judas' choice to give himself over to that. All the opportunities he had to turn away from that and yet didn't do so. So the, the easiest answer as to why Judas was chosen Although it's not easy if you like to debate these matters of, of uh, God's sovereignty, with Calvinism, Arminianism, all those kinds of things. It's not easy to get there, but we have to understand that you and I have a choice to make. And the more we give ourselves over to stepping out of the light of Christ, that, we, that he may eventually just say, I'm turning you over to the devil. The text tells us that Satan moved in. He had a foothold in him before, but now he completely dominates. And I also think that Jesus chose Judas to demonstrate true love. You see, this is where our world gets it all wrong. Because anyone can love the ideal person. The challenge is to love the real person. As I'm working with people who are going through marriage counseling or hopefully even like pre-marriage counseling, the first thing I try to say is like, look, you know, the world's kind of lied to you. They said that, that compatibility is the thing that's going to give you the best chance of success. That if you check off each other's boxes in just the right way, you're going to line up perfectly and it's going to go okay. But what you have to see if this marriage is going to be a success is that the gospel calls us to this one directional love that I will give. That's why we give promises in our vows. And sometimes people say we want to write our own vows. I'm like, well, I'm kind of okay with that, but I'm a little concerned because your vows are not just an opportunity to express your feelings for one another. The vows are the promises that you're going to make that you will go back to when everything in your, every fiber in your being is like, I don't want to do this anymore, but I made that promise. 
This is what Jesus is demonstrating for us is that anyone can love the ideal person, but the challenge is to love the real person. Who's the real person? He's a devil. And Jesus demonstrated this vulnerable love to a known traitor. All right, got a lot of ground to cover in three minutes. Two and a half pages in three minutes. He demonstrated this to his vulnerable children. He says, I'm telling you this now in verse 19, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. What is Jesus doing? He's, he's having a huddle. He's, he's commissioning his, his children. He says, I'm telling you this now so that when this betrayal happens, you don't think what's going on with the plan. He goes, I want you to know this time was coming. Imagine the, the, the fraying of the, of the, um, of the unity of the team. If, if the scandal got out that, oh, here's this, who's, here's this Messiah that can fix everything and heal this and start this and do that. So he can't even hang on to his own people. If his own team, his own disciples had heard this later on, they would have said, maybe there's some truth to the rumors. Jesus says, no, I'm telling you this now so that you'll trust when you start freaking out later and you will, that you'll trust. Oh, that's right. He said this was part of the plan. He said this was supposed to happen. And we all know what that does to our confidence by just being anchored to the fact that somebody knew what was going to happen calms us down a little bit. It gives us a little bit of hope. And these guys are going to need a lot of it. In verse 31, when he'd gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Do you think God's glory matters? He said it like 8,000 times in those two verses. Jesus' glorification is now in full motion. He hands the, the morsel over to Judas. Judas, uh, um, uh, in a sense, allows Satan to enter him. And Jesus turns to the team after Judas leaves. and He goes, now it just got real. I want you to know that my glorification is now in motion, that, that there are events now that are happening that we can't undo because Satan has got his path and he just left to get it started. He's not even explaining to them exactly what he means, but he's saying that my glorification is now intact. And you may recall a few weeks ago that we talked about that, that God's glory, as we would think of being fame and just victory. And after he's out of the grave, it's like, okay, that's what it was worth. And all of that still is his glory. But, but Jesus is indicating for us that his glory is even taking place in his uh, humiliation, that this dark and low road he's got to walk towards his own suffering is part of the glory of God. And remember, we talked about, well, how is that the case? It's because for thousands of years later, we would marvel at the fact that the God of heaven condescended to become born in the flesh for us and that he would submit to this dusty trail and have and have and, and willingly give his life over to his captors and that they would brutally execute him for us and that we would sing his praises because he did that on our behalf. His glorification is even in the humiliation, not just because he ultimately was victorious. So he says in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you'll seek me just as I said to the Jews. So now I also say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus is using tender language here, but it's pitiful language. We would, we would use the vernacular, my little darlings, 
He's saying, my little kids. He's not saying it just to show how affectionate. He's saying, I see you as immature and incapable of doing this on your own. And you picture as a parent, you watch what your kids are going to have to face and you just go, I don't know if they're ready. I wish I could take it for them. I wish they didn't have to go down this road. This is how Jesus is viewing his disciples. He says, my little guys, it's going to get really ugly for you. And where I'm going, you can't follow wherever I'm going, but you're going to have a very similar path after I'm gone. the, The heat's going to get cranked up on you. So then... He demands this vulnerable love for his church. He says, everything I've done, I've washed the feet, I've healed the sick, I've gone up against the detractors, I've done all these things. In verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So are we seeing the example a little clearer now? It's not just like, you know, the potlucks or, or even the gift giving that we did. You know, because a lot of that is sort of the thing that even our, our societal awareness would kind of say, all right, we, we do these things for one another and Christmas is a great opportunity to do that. He's saying, I want you to have that same energy and fervor to the person that just burned your house down. Go get them a Christmas present. It's, it's this radical, instead of retaliation or instead of expecting it to be a two-way street, how will you demonstrate this love to one another just as I have loved you? I have loved you in the face of betrayal. And not just the devil that we just sent out, but your own betrayal that you will put on full display as I march towards my suffering. He gives us this example by way of command. He calls it a new commandment because it's so much better than what they had seen in the Mosaic Code. It's not because that one wasn't good. It wasn't complete until Jesus came and showed it perfectly. So what makes it new is that now they have an example. Now they have somebody who's who's doing it the way that they didn't know how to do. Now he's doing it in such a way that is, is not just taking care of your neighbor who's good to you, is actually taking care of your enemy. We say this in marriage counseling all the time when people say, I just can't love my husband anymore. I just can't love my wife. We say, well, you know, God says to that you're supposed to, you know, love your wife. And we're like, well, I just can't really do that. I have no feelings of love or any of that kind of stuff. Or, or well, then God says to love your neighbor and be good to your neighbor. Well, I have neighbors that treat me a lot better than my spouse does. I don't think I can do that. Well, also God says to love your enemies. This is a command. This isn't a recommendation. And the reason why it's difficult for us to hear this and and to be reminded of this is because of what I've said is that the cultural mindset of the heart wants what the heart wants has moved into our lives as well. It's no longer just a thing on a movie. It's actually sometimes how we conduct our own lives and we say, I don't think the person that I'm supposed to love is worthy of what I'm giving them because they don't reciprocate in kind. Is it cruel for God to command something that's a feeling? It would be if that's what it were. But love is duty. Love is action. Love is obedience. And the feelings may follow. That's the grace of God. It's like a byproduct of when we do the right thing, oftentimes he comes flooding us in with, now, didn't that feel good? But if we're waiting for it to feel good until we do it, it just won't happen. There's no way that Jesus felt good about any of this scenario. His spirit was troubled. He was in turmoil and anguish over this. He wasn't enjoying this. Hey, guys, watch what I can do to Judas. 
And even as he's in the garden praying for some relief from all this, his body is sweating blood. He's in agony. And then he still has the gall to say, as I have loved you. And the disciples would only see how profound this love was later when they learned that he knew about Judas the whole time. They won't find out about this until later. You mean you knew all along and you still loved him anyway? You still let him get away with it? But they're no longer being instructed as children. They're being treated as adults. Children need rules. Don't go here. Don't touch this. Don't do that. And then we get our wrists smacked when we're children and everything. Now Jesus is saying, I've given you the example. I've given you the command. It's time to do this a new way. And he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I, I mean, can you imagine what this would look like to, to literally everybody? Loving people that don't deserve it, loving people who are incapable of loving you back, loving you, loving people who are trying to undo your happiness or your safety. Only a selfish, vulner, selfless, vulnerable love will stand out in a world of distorted, self-centered love. It's the only thing that will make this whole thing look unique. If we're just good to each other because we're nice to each other, everyone's like, well, you got a nice club going there. But when they start seeing us really love through the difficulty, love through the division, love through the spite, all, all those sorts of things, and we say, but I still don't want to give up on you because I see something or someone in you that maybe others have given up on. All of a sudden, the world starts to pay attention and be like, we haven't seen this. I haven't experienced this. My love is a, is a transaction. Everybody that I've loved or has quote-unquote loved me has wanted something back from me. And when I couldn't deliver or I refused to deliver, they left me behind. This is why this is radical. This is why this is our identifying marker is because it's so unique. How we look after one another's needs is directly proportional to how much others will see Jesus in us. So what is your prompting today? Is it to move towards authentic love because you're seeing yourself in the mirror or you're doing a history of the way you've loved others and you're like, oh, I think I was really just kind of playing a game in order to get by and then now that you know it's not paying me back, I kind of want to jump off the train. Is that sort of the, the Judas kind of thing in you? Do you look to Jesus to be the one to provide you with those things? Or is he the one really who is your master leading you down that path? And even if it is moving you towards these very uncomfortable and difficult things to swallow, he's still your Lord and worthy of your commitment. Maybe you're hearing the voice of a very tender father speaking to his little children who aches for the uh, discomfort that they'll have to go through in order to see these things through. Do you hear the voice of the Lord giving you courage or confidence to do this anyway? Everyone's going to laugh at you. They're going to say you're being foolish and short-sighted. You're not taking care of yourself more than you're taking care of others. And this is a sure way to depression and loneliness. Will you still step into this vulnerable kind of love? Because it is what your father has said is the only way to blessing and the only way to his glory. How do you intend to exemplify this vulnerable love to your brothers and your sisters. We have an audience that we can practice this with. We know one another's faces. We say, well, it's got to be authentic here before it can be one of those things that we try to impress people with out there. 
skipping you to get out there and make it look like we're a good church and, and we take care of one another. If they came inside and see, saw that that wasn't happening, and I'm so proud to say that I think it does happen here, but if they saw it wasn't happening, they'd be like, well, that was just a gimmick, trying to get their church bigger. It's not what God's interested in or what he's invested in. Instead, let's become people identified by a mystifying love that catches the world off guard and makes them start to understand why Jesus is truly the only Savior of the world. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer. Lord, this is a difficult calling. Again, the the further we get into this text, we get closer to the cross, Lord. They're just the seriousness and the nature of your gospel is just ringing in our ears and it's heavy on our hearts. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for it stripping away a more superficial approach in my own life, in my own heart, to what you've called us to. Pray you continue to transform us by your grace. I'm thankful, Lord, for a body of believers who humbly look after the needs of others, who give of themselves, Lord, and still struggle day to day with dusty feet. Lord, that's who we are. We are profoundly thankful for your forgiveness and the open door that you've extended to us that we can come to you and have our feet washed because you're still serving your church that way. King of kings and Lord of lords, the long celebrated, the long expected one is still serving and shepherding his little children. Thank you, Lord, for your care. In Jesus' name, amen.